Hello and welcome to Beauty is Eternal, the art of being your best self for women, where we go in depth and under the skin of experts. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Today's episode is called Health Author Dr. Joseph Arnold Build an Army of Good Gut Bacteria, Greens Instead of Grains, and Exercise. If you don't have good gut health, then you don't have good health. Dr. Arnold is the author of American Diet Revolution and has helped thousands of people improve their health, and today he is sharing his advice with us. The link between a healthy body and a healthy mind is something that has been studied and proven for years now. What many people do not fully comprehend is just how much exercise affects the health of both your mind and spirit and the way entropy can set in without physical activity. What's going on in your mind is inextricably bound up with what's going on in your body. We should be eating greens instead of grains. The state of your stomach bacteria can prevent or cause disease and can send signals to the brain through the 10th cranial nerve. Unhealthy bacteria can wreak havoc and cause, for instance, leaky gut syndrome and ulcers. Some people call the gut the second brain. These connections correlate to your feelings and the choices you make and ultimately affect your quality of life on many levels. Good health is a form of independence. Dr. Arnold has been working on this exercise-mind-spirit relationship as well as researching gut and brain health for over 40 years now. He comes from Iowa and studied English at Princeton and then at Framingham State University before returning to Iowa to get his doctorate at Palmer College of Chiropractic. He then moved to Massachusetts and opened his first clinic there in 1983 where he still lives and runs his chiropractic practice and strength training and rehabilitation center. Topics covered today include what the lungs of a 30-year smoker taught him about the possibilities for life extension, how he can feel physical weakness and aging develop over the years in patients, the link between lower back pain and depression, his diet and workout routine, why the humble sauerkraut is so important, and finally, the dangers of letting bad gut bacteria take over. Dr. Arnold is also my father. Let me say from the beginning that I may be biased. Let's start now. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Dr. Arnold. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, it's my privilege. I'm very happy to be here. You are a person who likes to compete. You played football and baseball in high school, and now you compete in the senior games in various states where you have won numerous medals. Can you tell us about your recent senior games experiences? Certainly. As you may know, in uh, every state of the United States, they hold what are called senior games, which are Olympic type of events for people 50 years and older. And they're broken up into five-year age categories. So everyone, in a sense, competes against people in their own age bracket. For instance, 50 to 54, 55 to 59, 60 to 64, etc. 
But the essence of the senior games is really participation and not necessarily cutthroat competition against those people in your age category or in your particular event. In other words, the competition is primarily about competing with yourself, trying to do a little better, have a little better form, give a little better performance each time you compete. Now, this year I have competed in three state games, uh, the Connecticut games in June, the Massachusetts games in July, and most recently in the New Hampshire games in August. And in September, I'll have the privilege to compete in the Rhode Island games. So the events in which I in particular compete are the discus and the javelin, both of which I started about three years ago at age 68 when I decided it would be fun to try some new physical activities that I hadn't done before. And that's an outgrowth of my personal philosophy that if we train ourselves properly, if we condition ourselves regularly, we can take on new physical tasks as we age. We may have to give up some that we did before. Let's say somebody's a pole vaulter. Well, maybe it becomes a little bit risky to try and push yourself up over a bar and then fall down when you're 70 or 80 or 90. But that doesn't mean you can't compete in something like, say, the broad jump or a 1,500-meter run. So the idea is that we all can continue to be physically active and enjoy the exhilaration of physical activity, not just after 50 or 60 or 70, but theoretically after 100. And in fact, there are some people who do compete after age 100 course it's a very individualized criteria which determines whether or not someone is able to continue training and competing after a certain age. But we all try to take part and participate in whatever activities we can do and enjoy doing as we age. So who knows, maybe in a year or two I will, maybe I'll try the broad jump or the 100 meter dash. Who knows? But The idea is that we can enjoy ourselves as we compete. You won the silver medal in the discus recently. Yes, that's that's right. In the New Hampshire games, I did. And in the Massachusetts games, I won the silver. How often do you train? To tell you the truth, I work approximately 12 hours most days during the week. So... Pretty much my training in the events is limited to the weekends. So I do it two or three days over the weekends. But during the week, I try to do conditioning exercises which improve my strength and flexibility and my agility, my sense of equilibrium and my balance every day. Those are things which are useful not just to compete in events, but to live a healthful and active physical life as one ages. That's very well said. Health and exercise is obviously something that's very important to you and something you've spent a long time dedicated to. What attracted you to work in the health field in the first place? 
Well, to tell you the truth, I've always been interested in the health field, even since I was a little kid. (laughs) I just enjoyed being able to do physical things, like to uh, throw a rock across a lake and see how many times I could make it skip, or to um, take a rotten pear and see how far I could throw it, or take a bow and arrow and try and shoot at a target. All of those things are just physical expressions of the desire to be physically active. Uh, It can be climbing a tree. I guess I've just always enjoyed those types of physical activities and been grateful for the opportunity to uh, participate in them. It sounds like exercise and being physical is something you've always really enjoyed in your life. Was there a particular aha moment when you thought, wow, I really want to work in the health field? Was it something that developed gradually? Well, I think that I have always wanted to do something in the health field. It took me a while to discover that. I was in graduate school in exercise physiology and working at a university in Vermont and really enjoying the uh, cardiovascular aspects of what would become the profession of an exercise physiologist. However, I wasn't quite sure that that was the exact field for me. Simultaneously, I was seeing a chiropractor on a semi-regular basis, once every three or four weeks, for some spinal adjustments. And I guess because of the questions I kept asking him, due to the fact that I was studying exercise physiology, he said to me one day, you know, you should be a chiropractor. I hadn't really thought about that as being a profession before, but by the time I left his office and walked out into the parking lot to my car, I said, wow, you know, he's right. (laughs) That is what would be a good profession for me. And what really attracted me was that it would be an opportunity to really study the human body in great detail. (laughs) In exercise physiology, you kind of study things from a distant point of view. You don't really look at individuals or their exact health state. You don't really do intensive anatomy and physiology or human dissection or things. But Those are areas of study which are essential in the chiropractic field. So I just said right away, yeah, this is an opportunity to really learn about how the human body works. That was my aha moment. (laughs) Did you have to dissect human bodies, for instance, when you were in chiropractic school? Oh, yes, that's part of the normal curriculum. But I wouldn't think of it as have to. I think of it as you know, just a great opportunity. It was a little bit creepy, you know, working on a a dead person for six months and uh, cutting human tissue in in ways that I never imagined myself doing before. But it was a great learning experience. And it allows me today, even today, I can visualize uh, well below the skin what's happening inside of the human body even when somebody is doing a physical activity. Or I can even imagine my own internal structures moving as I participate in events or even as I do physical activities uh, around the house. That is so cool. What were the most intense and the most surprising things you learned about the human body at that time when you were doing your doctor of chiropractic? Well, I would say that the most 
surprising thing to me was that the human body could sustain so much abuse and still that human being could stay alive. For instance, the the individual upon whom I worked was a heavy smoker and her lungs were almost as black as coal and yet she lived to be 54 years old. Oh my god. It was clear to me that she had been and in the history we received about her, she had been smoking heavily since she was a teenager. So she had lived almost 40 years smoking that intensively. You know, you would think that somebody's lungs who are compromised that severely would certainly pass away at a much earlier age. Not that 54 is an old age, but I was just amazed that she was able to survive that long and be that abusive. So what it taught me is the human body is very resilient and we have a lot of opportunity to improve our health. So what I thought of when I was working on her body was, wow, if somebody can take that poor care of themselves and still live to be 54, just think what someone could do who really took care of themselves well. The potential to me said that person could probably live to be almost twice that age. That was the most lasting impression on on me is, is how amazing the human body is and how much how great the potential is, even if we abuse it. And of course, conversely, if we don't abuse it, just what a tremendous potential we each have as an individual to enjoy what I call the freedom of good health. Do you think that understanding how resilient the human body is and the structure is and how much abuse it can take through smoking, through bad nutrition, also through accidents, for instance, Was that part of your inspiration for opening a rehabilitation center for people who are injured and people who need to recover from injuries? Was this understanding of how resilient the human body is and on the other hand, how injured it can become non-fatally that gave you that idea or did it come from somewhere else? The answer to both of those questions is yes. (laughs) From my experience of going through the four-year curriculum to become a doctor of chiropractic, I was impressed with the resilience and the potential of the human body. But after I had been in practice about five or six years, what I was feeling as I would, you know, as in you're aware, chiropractic is a very hands-on physical form of health care. So I had my hands on people's bodies all day long especially, of course, the uh, structures of the spine, the muscles of the spine, but also during the examination, evaluations of the arms, shoulders, legs. And the thing that struck me after about five or six years of practice was how steadily and unfortunately, uh, progressively, people were losing what I call the integrity of their musculoskeletal systems. In other words, I could feel weakness developing in individuals whom I saw in, say, year one, compared to year two, to year three, year four, weakness developing in the spinal muscles. They lost their integrity. You can feel people aging. That's exactly right. And I could also, unfortunately, feel the accumulation of fat in those muscles. Even though when you 
look at somebody, sometimes you feel the fat. You can see it in their face. In chiropractic, you can actually feel it in, in the muscles of their spine and their extremities. So I said, I've got to do something more to help people. Even though at that time, I was taking people to health clubs or to the YMCA. I was showing them exercises, trying to help them become more physically active, better conditioned. Either they would stop after a month, never start, or they would injure themselves while they were doing it. So I decided, well, I just have to start my own practice. You had to take it into your own hands. That's right. I had to take it to the next level. So that's why in 1989, 30 years ago, I started the Strength for Life Health and Fitness Center as a parallel clinical program to my chiropractic office. The goal is to help each individual develop better strength, better flexibility, better agility, better sense of equilibrium, better posture, better cardiorespiratory fitness so that he or she can do the physical things in life that he or she has to do, like in New England it's shovel snow or rake leaves, or the things that he or she likes to do, like hike or bike or swim or fish or play tennis or golf, to be able to do those physical things for as long in life as possible, to do them as well as possible, and not injure ourselves while we're doing them. That's what I call, at that time, I called it exercise health care. In today's parlance, that would be termed functional health care, but that term hadn't been invented yet. The long and the short of it is that if we learn to exercise intelligently, to eat more healthfully, we have the potential to enjoy life at a much higher level of function than we would if we just let ourselves go, so to speak. In these 30 years that you've had your rehabilitation and strength training center open, what are the injuries that you've seen people come in with most commonly? Well, the most common complaint and the most common problem would probably undoubtedly be lower back pain and um, associated symptoms with that, which might mean like sciatica leg pain. But it's almost never just one condition. There's usually a related condition. For instance, in lower back pain, I would estimate that at least 75% of the people with lower back pain have a weight problem, too much fat weight. And that obesity compresses the spine abnormally. And then if you combine that with the weakness from a loss of strength in what I call the lower torso-hip complex, then you develop postural abnormalities, which further aggravate the lower back. But I never approach an individual as a lower back problem or a neck problem. I always try to help each individual look at the totality of their physical structure and health that is, from the tips of their toes to the top of their neck. Uh, I don't do much with the muscles of the head, although some people probably do. But the point is that we have to really look at the entire structure and function of the human body in order to make a really healthful determination of what we can do to uh, improve our health as we age. 
Are any of these injuries that you see, that for instance, let's take lower back pain, do you think that it has anything to do in some cases with someone perhaps being depressed or anxious, or could it in turn then cause depression or anxiety? What for you is the link between the physical symptoms and any potential mental symptoms? I don't mean to pun on the question, but I think they both affect each other profoundly. In other words, certainly somebody with nagging, ongoing, daily, grinding, lower back pain is probably going to become depressed. And somebody who is already mentally depressed very often will develop not just lower back pain, but uh, muscular and joint aches and pains everywhere in their body. But the lower back tends to be one of those. And one of the reasons is, for instance, as somebody becomes, let's say, mentally depressed, they tend to exercise less because they don't feel like it. And when you exercise less, that aggravates, can aggravate symptoms throughout your whole body. But the lower back being kind of at the epicenter of the human body is where we manifest a lot of that discomfort. And truth be told, in modern civilization, we sit way too much and walk way too little. So the more we sit, the more things get aggravated. They both exacerbate each other. So with one person might begin with mental depression or another mental disorder. With another person, it may begin as a physical back problem. But they tend to cross over and, and exacerbate each condition. So they're very highly related, one exacerbating the other. In the end, they can amount to two sides of one coin, for instance. <laughs> they become interlinked from what you're saying. <laughs> yes, it would, it would depend if that's a euro or whatever denomination they're going to use in Great Britain uh, whenever Brexit happens. <laughs> Let's say that you have someone come in and they're overweight, they have lower back pain. Do you get them on an exercise program? Do you start to recommend nutrition? What's your method of helping this person to reach their optimal health? The first answer is that I interview each person and I try to find out what makes them tick. I try to understand the individual before I start to analyze what their physical conditions are or what their ailments are. I don't have a predetermined set of procedures that I use with every individual. However, it's not like I freelance. I try to get the pulse of the person first, that is, what their spiritual, mental, physical, and other needs are, what their occupational and family de demands are as well. And then a picture starts to emerge in my mind of what I can do to help that individual. Obviously, there are a lot of things that I cannot do. If somebody comes in with a knee condition that looks like it's surgical, beyond what I can do chiropractically or through exercise, I'm not going to try to do what I'm able to do. But it is my responsibility to help that individual find another practitioner who can take care of that aspect of their health. So there's no one formula I use. I just try to evaluate each individual on their own merits and what their own desires and limitations are, and then put together a package of what I feel are the most important things I can do to help them. 
But sometimes it is even more important to get the individual to someone who can help them other than myself. Obviously, we have many people today with substance abuse problems. We have many people with nutritional problems. Sometimes those issues need to be addressed first before we get into the physical aspects of their health care. It sounds like you treat patients the way that a doctor should treat patients, as though they're all individuals and look at their entire spiritual and physical imprint in order to get a grasp of what's really going on because it might look like it's an issue in one area, but it might have started in a different area or be connected to various other things. You stated that well. I want to ask you about how exercise can benefit the mind. Well, exercise is a form of mental health. <laughs> I don't, don't separate them. But what I try to do as I teach people exercise is to gradually bring them along from the mechanical manner of doing an exercise where they're, they're, they're just trying to perform an exercise physically in the manner in which I'm suggesting they should, to bring them along to the point where they start to feel that it's not enough just to do an exercise. Although often in the initial stages, we have to learn to physically go through the motions of doing something. What is more important, however, is that eventually you feel that exercise because when you feel it, it no longer becomes a mechanical activity. It becomes an intimate form of communication between the cortex in your brain and whatever structures in your body you happen to be stressing in that particular physical activity. And I think that's the key to, you know, how some people say, well, exercise is boring. If somebody says exercise is boring, it means that they're just mechanically doing something without really thinking about it and feeling it. But if I can get somebody to make that leap to where they're really feeling the exercise, then it becomes an exciting form of personal communication. Once you've entered that realm, then you realize that what's going on in your mind is inextricably bound up with what's going on in your body. And it just becomes an exciting event. That almost sounds like a spiritual experience. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. In some way, like you find a, a deeper connection. <laughs> you know the thing that excites me about doing the discus or the javelin? Once you've let go of the implement, you watch it fly. It becomes almost as exciting as watching an eagle fly overhead. It becomes a spiritual experience. Just the feeling in your body as you do this is truly amazing. You know, a, another way of thinking about it is if you've ever gone to a, a lake or the ocean and you dive into cold water, that exhilaration you feel right away as everything around your body suddenly becomes much colder is a spiritual experience, okay? It's physical to start, but once you enter that water, it becomes a spiritual experience. You relate to a level of experience that you wouldn't have if you were just going through daily life sitting at a computer. And that exhilaration is what I call the thrill of exertion. And that is, in fact, as you say, a spiritual experience. Wow. 
Could you share an inspirational anecdote with us about one of your patients that came to you perhaps in dire straits or in pain, who you worked with, who then really began to understand the beauty of exercise and the way that it can lift the spirit? I'll give you an example of our oldest trainee here at Strength for Life. His name is Tito Gambarini. He is now 97. He is a retired heart surgeon. He retired at age 65 because his wife said she did not want to be a rich widow. So she made him retire at 65 and he took up painting. So he not only was a skilled, well-known heart surgeon, he has become a very well-known and highly respected and very creative visual artist. When uh, his wife passed away, when Tito was approximately 90, and he moved from Rhode Island up here to Massachusetts, where my practice is. And he moved up here because he wanted to be close to his family. So his daughters both live in this area. So he happened to move in upstairs to an apartment above where we are. At the same time, he had been suffering from headaches for about two years. He had gone to Mass General and to many other hospitals seeking some treatment. And he had seen some very well-respected doctors in the health field, but without any relief. So one of his daughters happened to be a patient of mine, and she suggested that perhaps he come down and see me. He did, and I addressed his problem like I described earlier. I tried to listen to all the things that were going on in his life, not just that he had headaches, but that he had lost his wife, that he was thinking of going into assisted living because he was feeling physically run down and not able to take care of himself. Then I did some very basic, gentle chiropractic adjustments for what I diagnosed to be the problems in his neck. And with, uh, within a few weeks, his headaches disappeared and his neck pain as well. And then I suggested that in addition to the neck exercises, which I had already given him, that he could improve his health considerably by entering our Strength for Life whole body exercise program, which he did. That was six years ago. After about two months, he said, I don't need to go to assisted living. I can take care of myself now. Six years later, he is still taking care of himself. I had the good fortune of being in possession now of uh, five or six of his paintings, which hang on the walls of our fitness center and inspire everybody who's there. The other aspect of his health that really impresses me is that he now comes five or six times a week and he was in this morning. He worked very hard to keep his body as physically fit as he possibly could. Fortunately for me, he volunteered to write the foreword to a book which I published last year called Neck Strength for Life, in which he described in glowing terms the neck exercises which I had taught him to do, which he still does today. I would say that's just one example of a very gratifying and positive physical outcome in which we integrated not just chiropractic uh, adjustments, but also a comprehensive full-body exercise program. You might say that this heart surgeon has taken the, the Strength for Life program to heart. <laughs> well, Tito is has the energy of somebody who's 30 years old, even though he's three times that age. 
He looks incredible. He moves with such energy. That's a very, very inspiring story. And it kind of goes to show it's really never too late. And by the way, Dr. Arnold's fitness and chiropractic and rehabilitation studio is in East Hampton, Massachusetts. If you want to go in person and see some of the paintings made by Tito, which hang on the walls. What about your personal routine? How often do you exercise? When do you exercise? Can you share some of your personal routine with us? Because you are 71 years old and you are fitter than most people I know who are 30 years old. Whatever I am, it is what I am. So I don't compare myself to anybody else. I don't compare myself to whom I was at 31. I just try to be as, as healthy as possible. My own personal exercise routine is that I come here to the fitness center, usually at approximately 6.30 every morning, seven days a week. And I do a combination of exercises which involve not just strength training exercises with strength equipment or machines or dumbbells and barbells, but also a wide variety of what I call free-form exercises. Exercises on the floor, on the ball, exercises hanging from a bar, all kinds of physical exercises which enhance not just strength but flexibility, coordination, balance, equilibrium. I do a lot of postural exercises and I try to do exercises for the whole body. However, I do not do the same thing any two days in a row. As a matter of fact, I have seven different workouts that I do. Approximately four of them involve strength training Another three are more oriented toward cardiorespiratory fitness, flexibility, and posture. I think posture is something that is very often ignored in most people's routines, but we try to help everybody develop an awareness of how they can improve their posture as they age and not get bent over. We cannot afford to let gravity bend us down and forward as we age because it not only is disadvantageous for the joints of our body it impedes our circulation not just of blood but oxygen it also impedes digestion it damages and compresses the vital organs in our thorax okay so posture and uh, agility and the ability to walk gracefully smoothly coordinated in a beautiful way, is all part of what I try to do in my own routines. Because I have seven different exercise programs, I'm never bored because when I go to a new day, I haven't done it for a week. You know, it's like putting your foot into an old slipper that you haven't worn for a week or say, wow, that feels good. So I can honestly say I, I look forward to exercising every morning. It just makes me feel so, so good. And then when I start seeing patients at 8 o'clock, I'm energized and wide awake and feeling good. And I'm able to work uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day without too much uh, trouble because I got the day started right. Of course, the day won't continue to be right if you don't eat well. So that's the other aspect of it. I try to um, use very good nutrition in my own personal life as well as in what I recommend to patients. And that's why I wrote the book American Diet Revolution, which was published by Morgan James a little bit earlier this year. 
It's a guide to help people eat in a manner which will help them individually develop the strength and health they need to fulfill their own lives. An addendum about posture. I think bad posture for people who are single also makes them less attractive to prospective partners. So also something important to keep in mind that good posture is definitely something that people look at when they are assessing a potential partner. How do you come up with new exercise routines? You've been doing this for 40 years now. Do you have a set amount of period of time every three months you change your workouts? Do you keep them the same? How do you change these seven different workouts over time? Well, I can honestly say they change slightly every week. What I spoke about before is internalizing exercise. In other words, being in communication with your brain and your body at the same time, with your spirit and your physical self simultaneously. So as you feel each exercise you're doing, your mind is constantly working. Well, I could do this a little bit better. Maybe I should try this this way, or maybe I should try this that way. You know, very often you stick with the old way, but invariably, I would say maybe daily, but it's certainly two or three times a week, I find a new way to do an exercise or I find a new exercise entirely that my body tells me I should be doing. And then I add it to my routine. So if I were to videotape my workouts today and then videotape them one year from today, I'm very sure that some of those exercises would be quite different, and that's okay. We have to remember, our bodies never stay the same, not for one day. Our red blood cells turn over every 120 days. Virtually every cell in our body turns over every year. So we do not stay the same. So it's important to learn how to adapt your exercise program to what your body tells you you need. And if you do that, it's an organic process. It's never just replicating or mechanically doing an exercise. I have a saying, and this is encapsulates the whole thing. Every millimeter of movement, of every repetition, of every exercise is an opportunity for personal artistic expression. So that sums it up in, in one highfalutin sentence. So you're constantly making micro changes to your workout routine, listening to your body and feeling the exercises and the way that things want to develop. You once told me that someone who is in their 20s can get away with exercising twice a week, in their 30s, at least three times a week, in the 40s, at least four times a week, 50s, five times a week, 60s, six times a week, and after the 70s, it's seven times a week for the rest of your life. Correct. Once you're 70, I can say from personal experience, you do not want to let the rust accumulate for one day. Wow. It doesn't mean that you need to um, do a extremely onerous, heavy-duty workout every day, but you need, we need to do something physical that stimulates our body virtually every day. And I think almost anybody who's in their 70s will tell you that when you wake up in the morning, you feel a little bit stiffer than you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago. The secret to overcoming that stiffness and minimizing its impact upon your life 
is to engage in an intelligently organized exercise program every day. And I'm not saying you necessarily have to go to a gym. It might be that you just take a brisk walk every morning and do 20 minutes of yoga afterwards or 10 minutes of Tai Chi or whatever those physical activities that you can fit into the crevices of your life are. But we need to be physically active. That's the way the human body is made. If we don't exert ourselves physically, entropy sets in. The cells of our body develop kind of a randomness and eventually we're no longer able to do what we want to do. We're disabled prematurely. Doing physical exercise every day is a way of expanding the ability zone of our lives. Are there any exercises that you would recommend specifically to the general public? Can you narrow it down like that for our listeners? I will give you some examples, however, with the caution that not everybody is able to do every exercise. So again, when I work with somebody individually, what I do by observing them is I modify their activities. So it's not just what a particular exercise is, it's how they perform it. And very often, I have to help somebody modify an activity. In general, I would say, and that's I'm only speaking in general, not in specific, we all should have somebody who is knowledgeable and experienced and sensitive to advise us in our exercise programs rather than to just take information from a podcast or a book and and apply it specifically to our own lives. But I would say in general, one of the most beneficial exercises is what's called the leg lunge, where you stand in the beginning. I always have people hold on on each side, like if you were to do it in your kitchen, you could have one hand on a kitchen counter and one on a kitchen chair. And then you take a giant step forward and then you sink down so that your back knee actually descends sometimes only one or two inches toward the floor. Your back heel comes off and then you push back with the leg that went forward. You spring back and then you alternate those on a regular basis. You have your hands there to support you so you don't fall over because it challenges our sense of balance but it also increases the strength of our legs tremendously. Now, later on, we can do that exercise without holding on, and then we can actually add dumbbells in each hand as we do them, and it really becomes a very vigorous strengthening exercise. But just doing that exercise, holding on, and taking a giant step forward, sinking down, and pushing back, is called the leg lunge and that will develop strength in our legs which I think is critical. If you look at elderly people you're going to see that one of the worst things that can happen to people is lose their ability to walk, lose their ability to ambulate and once that happens then they become sedentary and all kinds of decay processes start. And they lose their sense of freedom. That's right, the freedom of good health. Now Again, I would say that the leg lunge is an exercise that you need to have somebody coach you in. I think the biggest problem I see with most people in terms of the decay of their musculoskeletal system is in the center of the body, what I call the lower torso hip complex. Not just the abdominals or the back muscles, but the hip muscles. If we get weak in our hips, if we lose the ability to walk and maintain our balance, 
then we become vulnerable to falling. And the leg lunge strengthens the joints, bones, and muscles of the hips. The number one cause of accidental death of people over 50, and I know most of your listeners don't have to worry about this yet, is falling. Fractures caused by falling. Developing strength in our 20s, 30s, and 40s through doing leg lunges or leg lunge-like activities is a great way to develop strength in the bones there so we become less vulnerable to falling as we age in the second half century of our lives. Even if you're in your 20s out there and listening, a leg lunge is a great exercise to do. I used to have hip problems. I pulled my hip flexors in the past, but I now do a lot of work on strengthening my hips, on strengthening the lower abs in that area and increasing my flexibility there. And I haven't had any problems in years since I started working on that. Definitely improved the quality of my life is a personal anecdote. In your book, American Diet Revolution, which obviously I have read, you focus a lot on gut health, How does having healthy stomach bacteria play into having a healthy life? (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about the most exciting area of nutrition of the last 10 or 15 years is the discovery, and it's an ongoing discovery, of how important and essential having beneficial bacteria in our GI tract, in our gastrointestinal system, is to our health. Each one of us has, depending on our size, somewhere between three to five pounds of bacteria in our gut at any one time. What type of bacteria there has a lot to do with the things we do for our own health. If we eat junk food, if we smoke, if we drink too much alcohol, if we do a lot of abusive things in life, we develop a bad group of bacteria in our gut. They're not all the same. In fact, there are hundreds of thousands of different types of strain of bacteria. The idea is to have the most beneficial, the best forms of bacteria in our gut because they protect us. They play a vital role in our health every day. As a matter of fact, without that good bacteria, we're dead. (laughs) That bacteria plays a vital role in digestion. It plays a vital role in our immune system. So they are, in my estimation, like having an army in your body. They are your own personal army. They take care of you. They protect you. They are your national guard. We know now that bacteria can actually communicate, that bacteria can actually communicate directly with your brain through one of the cranial nerves, the 10th cranial nerve. They can actually map how the bacteria send signals up to our brain and our brain can send information back to the bacteria. So they play a vital role in maintaining our homeostasis, the balance of beneficial life upon which we are all dependent for ongoing good health. What do you see as potential negative consequences of not having healthy stomach bacteria and on the flip side having primarily unhealthy bacteria? What are the dangers people should be aware of? Unhealthy bacteria, there are a lot of 
obvious diseases that it can cause. Uh, Stomach ulcers is a good example. It can also cause constipation. Unhealthy bacteria can cause erosion of the lining and of our small intestine, which then allows abnormal proteins in our gut to leak into our bloodstream. And once abnormal proteins from the gut get into the bloodstream, a whole host of very serious disease processes can start. That's leaky gut syndrome, correct? That's correct. That's leaky gut syndrome when in the small intestine, abnormal bacteria cause a rift, a breaking of what's called the tight junction between the cells that line the small intestine. And when that happens, abnormal proteins leak into our bloodstream. And once they're there, once these abnormal foodstuffs and bacteria are in our gut, then they can travel to all the other 12 bodily systems. They can migrate to your brain, to your heart, to your pancreas, to your liver. They can cause damage to your blood vessels. They can cause cancers. They can cause autoimmune diseases. It's like you let a a host of uh, terrorists loose inside your body. These terrorists are kept under control by good bacteria. But if the good bacteria is not present, if the wrong types of bacteria become prevalent, it's like a military coup. They take over your immune system and then they, they wreak havoc. They cause distress to all the citizens, which would be comparable to the systems of your body, all the cells of your body, become under duress with these military invaders, these terrorists. So what we need to do is eat the foods that cultivate good bacteria in our body. One of the most humble and most effective of these is sauerkraut. Sauerkraut, which is just fermented cabbage, is very rich in the types of beneficial bacteria that we all need in order to have good gut health. If we don't have good gut health, we don't have good health. It doesn't matter what you do the other systems of your body, even if you exercise. If you're eating bad foods, if you're allowing bad bacteria from junk foods or contaminated foods or foods with chemicals in them that shouldn't be in our body, then what's happening is you are not healthy. No matter what else you do, whether you brush your teeth every day, three times a day, floss your teeth, comb your hair, wash your face, do everything else, exercise, if you're not eating right, you're not healthy, period. That's why I call it American Diet Revolution, because most of us in the United States do not eat well. The rate of obesity in the United States has risen from 14% in 1961 to approximately 35% today, almost three times what it was 60 years ago. That's unacceptable. And it's causing severe economic, emotional physical and health problems that really put our entire civilization at risk. It's that serious a problem. You get into this in your book. A big part of the reason why so many people have unhealthy stomachs and are are not in their ideal state of health, at least in the U.S., is because there are a lot of industries that profit from people eating, for instance, sugar, drinking soda, 
drinking pasteurized milk from cows that are filled with hormones. Can you give our listeners who are not familiar with this a very brief overview? Okay, uh, I will attempt to do that, although it's such a compelling subject. The long and the short of it is that there are economic interests, what I call cartels, (laughs) in agriculture, in government, and in the medical field that prosper immensely when we eat poorly. The biggest examples of that are in the food industry, what I call grain-based foodstuffs. More than 50% of the calories consumed in the United States and almost worldwide come from wheat, oats, corn, and rice. And the first three, wheat, corn, and oats, are in most forms very detrimental to our health. I know that sounds totally contrary to what we were told in the 20th century when the food pyramid was offered in 1992 and it told us we should eat 7 to 13 servings of grains per day. Well, that was a manifestation of the type of advice that had been going on for 30 years at that time and continues to be followed by most people today and is the single most important reason why Americans have this obesity crisis, which I say threatens the freedom of good health. Good health is a form of independence, but when we eat poorly, we become dependents. We sacrifice our independence because we become diseased by eating foods for which the human digestive system is poorly adapted to prosper. What that means is we have to gradually shift away from grain-based foodstuffs, which are the most profitable commodity in the world, by the way, more profitable than diamonds, more profitable than oil. Think of it. Nine billion people eating more than half of their calories from grain-based foodstuffs every day. In the United States, it's more like 55%. That is a huge market. Potato chips, bread, bagels, cookies. That's the majority of what people eat. Crackers, chips, all of those things. Oatmeal, it's a fattening food. Again, I'm not going to go into detail here as to why that is. I pretty much describe it in detail in the book, and it's not unique to me. It's been well known for more than 20 years and documented by many of the other leading nutritional researchers and writers of the 21st century. We've been fortunate that in the 21st century, there are a number of really honest nutritional writers who don't work for the grain industry or the medical industry, but work actually independently. And their work gets expanded and spread through the internet, through enhanced opportunities for publishing. So there's a much wider readership of that information than was allowed in the 20th century. We should be eating greens instead of grains. We should be eating vegetables, not grain-based foodstuffs. Vegetables make us lean and healthy. Grain-based foodstuffs make us fat and unhealthy. There are other food and things we need to take into account, such as the pollution of our food with glyphosate and other herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, and substances that have no place in the human diet. We need to 
also recognize that one of the key elements to improving the freedom of good health is to buy our products from the local growers in our communities. These are the people we know and can trust. There are no big grain companies selling local produce at your health food store or at your local farmer's market. These local people are the ones who are raising foods in our neighborhood and who are taking responsibility because they are feeding their neighbors. We need to honor these local growers and support them because when we purchase locally grown produce especially, but also eggs and meats and other products from our local growers, then we are supporting our own community. When you buy grain-based foodstuffs from General Mills or Quaker or whatever, you are supporting international cartels. You're not doing anything for your, the prosperity of your local community with these purchases. We lose our independence when we buy from these big cartels. <laughs> well, people know about international drug cartels, but what you're talking about are international food cartels, which is something not as well known. Right. I try to pin the responsibility upon what I call the medical industrial complex. And I include myself in that. All health providers are part of the medical industrial complex. We profit when people eat poorly, okay? If we don't advise them on how to eat better, we should know better because we've studied human anatomy and physiology. We have access to the information that can tell people what they should and shouldn't eat. But if, for instance, we were to suddenly have people revert to eating more vegetables and discarding the grain-based foodstuffs from their diet, guess what? We'd have 50% lower rates of obesity. What would that mean? Fewer hip surgeries, fewer knee surgeries, fewer gastric bypasses. A lot of medical facilities, hospitals, would have to close wings of their hospitals because they're dependent upon people eating poorly for their own economic prosperity. It is a gut check for everybody in the health industry. Are you going to be health-oriented? Try to help people become healthier? Or are you just going to continue to prosper with everybody else's disease? In other words, become a disease manager rather than a health provider. Those are the issues that I bring to the fore in American diet revolution. And it does take a revolution. We are approaching the point of no return. If two-thirds of us are obese or pathologically overweight, that means there are only about a third of us left healthy enough to help the others. Each one of us has a responsibility to aid in the revolution in nutrition that needs to take place if we are truly going to be healthy people. I had the good fortune of growing up with you, and you taught me very early on the connection between what I ate and my mental health and aging and physical health. I was very lucky to learn that from you at a relatively early age. I'm curious to know more about what you eat and what you don't eat on a day-to-day -day basis. They say that you should learn from the best, so maybe you can share with us what you eat on a typical day. <laughs> okay, what I don't eat, grain-based foodstuffs. 
That doesn't mean just soda and chips. It means I don't eat bread. I don't eat oatmeal. I don't eat granola. I don't eat cereal. I don't eat bagels. I don't eat cookies, etc., etc. Unless there are some new products out now which are made with, for instance, with almond flour or walnut flour or coconut flour. But that's another issue. What I do eat in the morning, I usually begin the day with a large glass of water and a couple tablespoons of sauerkraut. (laughs) That's about all I, I have. And then I come to exercise and I try to drink at least a pint or two of water during my exercise process. After I finish my workout, very often what I'll have for breakfast, if I'm in my kitchen or at a restaurant, I'll probably order some eggs or something like that, an omelet. But if I'm at the office, what I very often eat first thing is a cup of bone broth. Bone broth is nothing more than bones which have been cooked for about two days or more, and all the mineral and protein constituents of those bones and the ligaments in which hold them together are cooked. So it's a high-protein, high-mineral food and another form of water into my system. If I'm still hungry, very often what I'll I'll eat is my own trail mix, which is usually just made up of some raw nuts or seeds, walnuts, pecans, almonds, coconut flakes or or just plain coconut, Brazil nuts, macadamia nuts, anything like that. I'll snack on that a little bit during the morning. So that's pretty much what I'll have for breakfast. For lunch, If again, if I'm at the office, I'll usually have three soft-boiled eggs. But sometimes I'll have a little um, sheep cheese and a large salad. I bring a salad in a big quart jar. It's what I call salad in a jar. You know, it's just chopped up vegetables. I like to have beets and scallions and radishes and cabbage and mixed greens, etc., etc., carrots whatever vegetables I have. Then I season them with olive oil and apple cider vinegar. I often add spices. Um, Rosemary is one of my favorite. If I don't put raw garlic in it, I'll put some garlic powder on it. You know, whatever spices feel good. So that's uh, pretty much my lunch. In the afternoon, in the mid-afternoon, I'll usually uh, have a protein shake, a nutritional shake, which usually is constituted with some vegetable powder or some raw vegetables that I've mixed up in the blender. Could have blueberries in it. I usually mix all of those things in water first because they tend to combine very nicely. And then if I want, I'll add something with a little more probiotic in it, like kefir or yogurt. And I always use a, a full-fat yogurt, or sometimes I'll use sour cream, which is nothing more than yogurt made with cream. It just has no lactose in it at all. And then I'll put in some type of protein powder. It could be hemp powder. It could be whey protein powder. And then I'll also add some ground flaxseed and ground hemp powder. And, you know, anything else like blueberries or strawberries, any any uh, fruit or something to give it some extra taste. Sometimes I'll put a little uh, more olive oil in it or some coconut oil. Depends on whatever you want. There are some recipes in American Diet Revolution. Sometimes I'll add some coffee to that mixture to make it flavorful too. 
So that's pretty much my mid-afternoons. In the evening, generally I don't eat a huge amount. Usually we'll have a, either a small serving of a meat. Could be chicken, could be a piece of fish or something. Not a lot. And then usually a cooked vegetable and oftentimes a salad with that as well. I try not to eat too much after dinner. I usually have a, some type of herbal tea. My favorite is licorice tea, but it could be any type of tea afterwards, again, to get some more water in your diet. I try to drink a pint of water between every meal and a pint of water when I wake up and a pint of water when I work out and then another pint of water after dinner. So I try to get a few quarts of water in in addition to the water which is contained in the fruits and vegetables I eat most of the day. For a snack in the evening, uh, a lot of times I'll have dried coconut flakes or just real coconut. Sometimes I'll have some 90% cacao chocolate, which is very low in sugar. Always try to keep your um, sugar content of chocolates uh, below 5 grams per serving. So that's not hard now that there are some really delicious chocolate bars, which are very high in cacao and very low in sugar. That's just a typical day. You know, on weekends, we tend to deviate from that a little bit. We might go out for an omelet in the morning or something like that. That's a typical diet of what I eat. So it's very high in vegetables. I try to eat about 10 vegetables a day. Four or five days a week at least, I'll have three eggs, a small serving of chicken or fish or pork or beef or lamb or something like that. In season, I like to, you know, get berries, whatever berries happen to be around. Uh, berries are a really delicious form of fruit. And I also, in, in the uh, shakes that I have, I like to incorporate foods like flax. It can be chia seeds. I like ground hemp. You know, sometimes for a snack, I'll have a, some whole fat yogurt, and I'll put some hemp seeds and uh, flax seeds in that, sweeten it with some coconut or blueberries, etc., etc. <laughs> it varies day to day. And in general, that's the scheme. In American Diet Revolution, I put my own one-week nutritional diary. For the last 35 years, virtually on every patient, I've had them keep track of everything they eat for a week. And then I use that as a catalyst to judge how well their diet is and if there are some ways in which I can help them improve it. I can say in 35 years that the biggest problem most people have is they still eat as though they're in the 20th century. They still eat according to the pyramid. They're still eating five or six or eight, ten servings of grain-based foodstuffs a day. That's just an invitation to uh, gain weight, gain fat weight. What I try to do is help people reform. And very often, every three months, I'll redo their body comp test, which I do on the initial examination, and we'll measure what their percent body fat is now relative to what it was when they began. And then you have an objective measure. It's not the only measure, but one measure to see if they're improving their health as they age. Would you say that there's something spiritual about eating healthfully in a similar way that there's something spiritual about exercising, in a way honoring creation and honoring your body? You know, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think it's an excellent point. And I'll give you an example now that you, you've asked that question. 
I tell people at least once a day to try to eat a meal in which they're not looking at the newspaper or a computer or listening to the radio. Rather, they're just sitting there chewing their food and enjoying it, experiencing its tastes and smells and textures. Perhaps you could sit and look out the window at a bird feeder while you're eating in this way or something like that. You don't have to necessarily keep your eyes closed. But just communicate with what your body is experiencing while you eat food. One of our problems in modern civilization is that we eat on the go. (laughs) We don't even think about it now. We drive through a restaurant. You, You grab something and then you're munching on it as you drive in traffic. Well, that's crazy. How good is that for your digestion? When somebody pulls out in front of you or honks your horn because you didn't start up immediately when the light turned green. That is not inducive to good health. Not at all. Right. And it's anti-spiritual. But I would say that closing your eyes and eating uh, what I call crunchola is a mixture of, uh, let's say, some raw nuts and what I like to put in for a little flavoring is what are called coconut liquid aminos and maybe use some almond milk as the uh, liquid in your crunchola. No grains in it, nuts, walnuts, flaxseed, hemp seeds, whatever. But just close your eyes and feel what those textures and tastes and smells of those foods as you chew them. And if you do that, you'll actually start to communicate, maybe even at least indirectly, with the bacteria in your gut. That's amazing. There's a certain spiritual quality in that. That's so well said. Dr. Arnold, before we wrap up our interview for today, I want to ask you, what's next for you? What do you have coming up in the future that our listeners should look out for? Last year, I published a book called Abdominal Strength for Life, Volume 1, Beginning and Intermediate Level Training. I'm working on putting together all the photographs and explanations for the advanced level of an abdominal book. By the way, American Diet Revolution began as only one chapter in Abdominal Strength for Life. But the more I researched it, instead of 20 pages, it grew into 200. (laughs) And I realized that it was not a chapter of a book, it was a book in and of itself. Not only because there was so much information, but because it was so important and so compelling. You know, the most important thing people can do is to work on understanding better nutrition. We all have to work on it because it's still a growing field and we have to stay up to date. The problem most of us have is we're still stuck in the 20th century because that bad information was drummed into us so effectively by the cartels that profited by our accepting without questioning the information they were giving to us. We don't have to do that anymore. The internet has freed us and given us the opportunity to access information at our fingertips, but we have to use it in an intelligent way. If we don't, other people will use it to manipulate us, and that, again, is a loss of freedom. Health 
is a form of freedom, a manifestation of freedom. And I think that's the most important thing we can do. In my opinion, health care begins with self-care. There are three forms of self-care. Number one, we have to eat well. Number two, we have to exercise. And number three, we have to nurture our spirit. We need to take a little time to rest. We need to take a little time to eat slowly and carefully. We need a little time to relax a little bit. All of those things that kind of get swept under the carpet in this modern pace of human civilization. That's what I call self-care, and that's the triumvirate of physical things that we can do. We have the power, the independence to do that, but we have to exercise those opportunities. Eating intelligently, exercising diligently, and nurturing our spirit daily. We only get one body. We better take care of it. (laughs) Dr. Arnold, could you give us a few recommendations? I'm asking all the people I interview three final questions, which are the same. And the first is a recommendation for one book that was very meaningful for you. One book to read would be a book written in 2014 by Nina Teicholz is called The Big Fat Surprise. The reason that book is important is she documents in meticulous detail all of the deceptions of the 20th century and how it wasn't just by accident that we were given misinformation. It was deliberate actions. We were deceived and we accepted it without questioning it. So I would say that's the most important book if I had to just choose one. What I tried to do in American Diet Revolution was not create new information, but rather to summarize all the best information of the 21st century. Because if there's one word to characterize our understanding of nutrition today, it's confusion. People are confused about it. I tried to summarize the best information of the 21st century and not tell people accept what I say blindly, but to read at least one intelligent book and start to become a learner and questioner rather than a blind acceptor of not only nutritional information, but health information. By the way, another book you do recommend in your book is The Plant Paradox. And my boyfriend's been reading that. That's had a big impact on him as well. So that's another recommendation you've indirectly given me that I'm going to share now, if that's okay. This is something we've already gone over to an extent. Let's say that you are feeling stressed out. What is the best way you would deal with it? Would that be going for a walk, for instance? It depends what time of day it is. To me, the most important thing is that in the morning... That first hour from 6.30 to 7.30 as I exercise vigorously. Then if anything is bothering me from the day before, it goes away. It also prepares me to be strong and to deal with whatever's going to be coming up during that day. But what you've just said is taking a walk. That's another fabulous way. Whenever I um, become stuck, when I'm writing or I'm a little bit frustrated, I often find that if I just stop, go out, take a walk, all of a sudden 
those problems become only half as much and the solutions to them very often comes. Those would be the two forms that I would recommend. Very good. And the final question is, what's your favorite place? Ah, that's a very good question. I would say... I'm guessing it's Vermont, but... <laughs> Vermont is, is my favorite state, yes. <laughs> but if I were to say right now on a daily basis, it's just a local park where I can go to think and write and I can exercise. In fact, I wrote my first book, which is called Stronger After 40, entirely at that park, just sitting in, the, in my car at the park writing while I was watching the birds fly over and the people uh, play in games, baseball, softball, whatever, soccer, while it was happening. I think parks are an essential part of the spiritual development of our cities. <laughs> that's, that's a good answer, Dad. I mean, Dr. Arnold. <laughs> in the notes to this show, I'm going to link to your website and I will include the information that we've gone over as well in, in links. And that will be at beautyiseternal.com. And Dr. Arnold's website is strengthforlife.com. That's strength, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H, for, F-O-R, life, L-I-F-E, dot com. You can read more about him there. You can check out his Facebook, get in contact with him. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Dr. Arnold, before we and this interview? No, I am just as excited to be part of it, and I am grateful to you for having me here. Well, thank you so much for coming. You've taught me most of what I know about my life, so thank you for, for being here. I always learn so much every time I speak to you. Well, I learn a lot from you, Caitlin, so you have dragged me kicking and screaming into the 21st century. <laughs> Well, then, thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.